cash, every movie costs $2,184. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Backtracks Theme Music. My name is Corey Morissette, joined, as always, by everybody's favorite, John Mariano. How are you doing today, John? Walk, John, ro- walk, which would be what you would say to me if I were a superhero. <laughs> we say, we say, run, Barry, run. Ain't nobody telling me to run. Like, you can tell me to walk, maybe. <laughs> yeah, you're a pretty big walker. Uh, you've been out getting some exercise, been looking good, too. Oh, well, thank you. I've actually been uh, taking some time off from it, but I, I, w- I was just enjoying some tasty um, pink pineapples before we jo- I joined the show today. Oh, very nice. I, I just got back from the gym, uh, which I've now expanded from just my Wednesdays when I record to Mark Meyer to uh, this Sunday, as John and I sit down to record a couple shows of our favorite show, Backtracks Theme Music, where we're talking uh, the symbiotic relationship between music and movies. And we thought we would talk about a, a fairly new movie in theaters right now that's making all sorts of headlines. Uh, that movie is The Flash. And it's making headlines, John, but maybe not for the right reasons. Tell us a little bit about The Flash. So, first of all, I'm going to do a spoiler warning, although I'm taking the box office as most people don't want to see this movie and just aren't. It's not that you're not getting around to it. You just the the lack of interest is there and it's understandable. The Flash is the um, it's not the last movie in in the Zack Snyder universe, but it might as well be. Um, It's it's been a franchise of diminishing returns, and I don't want to say diminishing qualities i don't know if that's a fair thing to say i think that the snyder universe is a failure of a production company as a whole and not just a failure of one filmmaker his name is eternally tied to it and he made a creative decision on which direction he wanted to go the studio approved it and then the studio changed its mind several times over and it's not more evident than in this movie it feels like it's a series of um, lackluster development and and um, second guesses and storylines that were um, chopped in the editing room. Uh, yes. What, uh, was your, uh, what was your take, Corey? Oh, wait, the, the Flash has been in development since, uh, well, 2013 is kind of the, the kickoff to the DCEU. Uh, so a good 10 years. Oh, here we go. Oh, I, I believe it's been in development a little bit longer than that. Well, technically, I, I'm talking about the DCEU version of The Flash has been in development <laughs> since 2013. Since the 80s, they've been trying to get a Flash movie off the ground. Right. They have been in, in various forms. So they have been pay, paying development teams or, 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 or brain trust or writers or whatever since the 80s to try and develop this movie. And this is a, you know, it might as well be called fa- failure to launch because even upon launch, it was a, it was a false launch. Um, the TV show did a much better job with these storylines. And the TV show, most people fell off after the first couple of seasons due to repetitiveness and, you know, a certain CW quality that turned a lot of people off after a while. Um, that being said, um, it's a superior Flash story, any way you cut it on that show. And the cartoon is light years ahead of this. So, so let's go back to the 80s and, and give you a little brief overview of the development. Uh, David S. Goyer was supposed to write and direct a new version of the fa- uh, Flash. Uh, that was back in 2004. Uh, Jeff Loeb, uh, the comic book writer, 
I was, I was supposed to write a screenplay in the late 80s. That didn't turn out. So they went to David S. Goyer uh, after his uh, uh, script for Batman Begins. They thought that was pretty cool. So Goyer wanted Ryan Reynolds uh, to be Wally West uh, in his film uh, after he worked with him on Blade Trinity, which is another film that David Goyer directed. Um, but after uh, he left, uh, then I went to Sean Levy, uh, who uh, also was going to have Ryan Reynolds. They're now very good friends. are working on Deadpool 3 right now. But Sean Levy was going back to the... Uh, uh, Night at the Museum franchise. So they went to George Miller, of course, the mastermind behind uh, Mad Max. And he was going to direct a film entitled Justice League Mortal, which was going to introduce Adam Brody uh, as the Flash. And I thought, you're definitely not getting uh, too many jokes, I think, with Adam Brody. Uh, it would have been much more serious. But I think George Miller's version is more of the Justice League dark uh, kind of thing. Right, John? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it's funny because it's had so many different iterations. And it, it really goes to show you know, just hearing all these different filmmakers and their different styles and their different writings, um, the, the the studio really lacked a direction on which way to go with this, right? Like, on paper, Ryan Reynolds as a Wally West Flash, especially a young Ryan Reynolds, sounds like a no-brainer. Oh, yeah. But, but outside of the Batman films, you know, and, and a couple of the Christopher Reeve Superman movies, this has been a studio of mixed returns at best. You can say what you will about Man of Steel. I know it has its defenders because if you say anything bad about Man of Steel online, people will come out of the woodworks to, to murder you. Um, but it did not have cross um, four quarter appeal, which is what you look for in the Superman movie, right? Like you look, mm -hmm. you look to hit all four generations. And and it, it wasn't that. And and you know, people can argue well Superman murders and Superman this and Superman that Superman has become come to be known as the big blue boy scout and the movie didn't deliver that. And Henry Cavill is a fantastic actor and was perfectly cast as the man of steel. And the studio fumbled the ball. But if I were gonna compare and Corey, we're football fans, right? If I were gonna compare the man of steel to a football team of a certain era i would compare it to the 90s buffalo bills it, it it was a very good franchise but it wasn't an all-time great because it never won the big game mm -hmm. no that, that that's a pretty good metaphor uh so uh, we, we talked a little bit about Zack snyder we're gonna talk about him in the next show too uh but you, you know they, they went and hired Zack snyder and you know if you're gonna hire Zack snyder you go all in on Zack snyder right so he makes man of steel very much a, a Zack Snyder film makes Batman v Superman again, very much a, a Zack Snyder film in that it wasn't good. Uh, and then, you know, about, you know, they, they started getting hints on justice league, you know, people wanted more Avengers. They wanted light and happy. They didn't want dark and brooding. Uh, so, you know, unfortunately Zack Snyder had a, uh, a tragedy in his life and he uh, stepped away and Josh Whedon came in and totally ruined uh, whatever the fuck they were doing uh, with justice league. But one of the things Zack Snyder did do was cast Ezra Miller uh, as the flash uh, who made a, a cameo in Batman v Superman and, and took on a much uh, larger role uh, in, in the Justice League. What was your feeling on the casting of Ezra Miller? Because I know um, in those two films specifically, I wasn't a big fan of his uh, their performance. So, 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 you know, we can talk about the casting in general. Um, I, I, I will contest. I, I, I will be the um, devil's advocate here for the Zack Snyder fans because they're not here. Even though I'm not a huge fan of Zack, I like one Zack Snyder movie. I believe we will, as a spoiler, talk about that 
on another podcast on another day. Um, but o- overall, my feelings of Zack Snyder are he's very much um, style over su- substance. Um, you know, he, he, I've said to my friends, if Zack Snyder could just film little eight to 10 second version shots of his movies and I could hang them as moving pictures on my wall, I absolutely would because it's beautiful filmmaking, right? And, 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 they're, and they're very well crafted shots. Um, but, but, you know, when it gets to the casting, look, Ben Affleck, great casting. Gal Gadot, I, I, I challenge whether or not it's great casting. She's a beautiful woman, but they they use the Wonder Woman movie and they cast around her to hide some of her acting flaws. Um, and they had to do a couple of movies in between her first appearance and her second appearance to get her to beef up her acting a little bit. Um, Henry Cavill, fantastic a- actor, well cast. Um, could have could have made a run on Superman for twenty or thirty years if he was given the right screenplays. And then we get to Ezra Miller, which was the question you asked me. And Ezra Miller, kind of like um, what's his name from Zombieland? Why am I playing the kid from the Social Network? Why am I oh, uh, Jesse Eisenberg. Kind of like Jesse Eisenberg playing Lex Luthor. Ezra Miller made an acting choice as the Flash. And there was a personality flaw with Barry Allen that I don't think A, was in line with the spirit of the character, and B, I think, took away from the charm of the character. And it's not because he... he I don't know if he made him seem autistic or, or if he made him seem... he Barry is supposed to be your window into the DC universe. And, you know, playing a character that doesn't relate to people as the character that people are supposed to relate to um, is a very tough ask of an audience to be your window into the universe. Right? And I think that's part of the fatal flaw with this particular version of Barry Allen. So uh, we have Ezra Miller cast uh, as the Flash. Uh, Flash. Uh, let, let's go through some of the directors now since around the time of Justice League. Uh, Rick uh, Femu, uh, how do, I can't even know how to say his name. Femu, Femu Yia, Femu Yia. Uh, he, uh, you would know him now. He did a lot of uh, The Mandalorian, directed some of the best episodes of that. He's now an executive producer on that. Uh, he was hired uh, as director and then he left. Uh, after that, they went to guys like Robert Zemeckis, uh, Matthew Vaughn, uh, Sam Raimi, Mark Webb, uh, Jordan Peele, Ben Affleck, um, all uh, kind of turned down the opportunity to do this film. Um, and, and there was even more after that, like uh, the list of directors that, that kind of went through uh, the, this franchise is, is, you know, it's an impressive list, but um, they all cited like a creative differences, uh, which is not a good sign uh, when you have a, a long gestating film like like, like The Flash and, and you can't find the right director for it. Um, eventually they would uh, settle at Andy Muschietti, uh, who's a horror film director. Uh, you might know him as the director of the the It films, It Chapter 1 and It Chapter 2. Uh, John, uh, what did you think of that hiring at the time? And were you a little sad that maybe a guy like uh, Sam Raimi or uh, Bob Zemeckis didn't get The Flash? No, I, was, I actually wasn't sad because I, I don't know if at this point in their careers they're making movies that would be 
relatable. Like B- Barry Allen to me, a perfect filmmaker would have been like John Hughes in the eighties. So so like, I know it's a special effects heavy movie, but the way they did Spider-Man Homecoming is the way they needed to do the first Flash movie in mm-hmm. a lot of ways. It needed to feel like a teen movie. And those directors you mentioned aren't that. Now, on paper, Muschietti seems like the right choice because I had only known him from two movies, It Chapter 1 and It Chapter 2. And the problem I have with it is I look at those two movies as one is, I think, very fantastic and I highly recommend it for people to watch. And the other one is almost like a you should avoid this movie kind of recommendation, even though the cast is outstanding. It, it chapter two did not land with me and didn't land with many people I know. Right. And part of that I've always thought is the problem with the book that the second half of the book is far less relatable than the first half of the book. So I was willing to give him a pass knowing how the original it um, TV movie ended up. And going, well, the first half was pretty fantastic, and the second half kind of landed like a, a, a brick in the ocean. Um, with that being said, I think now after seeing this movie that Andy Muschietti is not a must-watch filmmaker for me. Interesting. And, uh, of course, he was just uh, handed the reins of another Batman franchise. He'll be directing... Uh, the Brave and the Bold for uh, for DC. Uh, one of the things we're going to talk about, kind of interwoven with the song here today, uh, is issues happening at Warner Brothers right now. Uh, they continue to do everything wrong. Uh, but one of the things that the jury's still on is they hired James Gunn and Peter Safran to handle, uh, to to ditch the DCEU, which is uh, the phrase that was coined for the Zack Snyderverse, and to create a new DCU. Uh, which this film was supposed to be the reset for. Uh, James Gunn had said, we're going to reset the DC film universe uh, with The Flash and and then go from there. And that did not happen. After seeing The Flash, it's like, you know, we're we're at the exact same spot we left off with when we started. This isn't a reset to anything. Another thing James Gunn said was, um, this is maybe one of the greatest comic book films of all time. Uh, After seeing the film, I can tell you right now that uh, I don't know if anyone uh, agrees with that, uh, uh john uh james gunn um did you go in with that kind of preconceived notion that this is going to be one of the best superhero movies of all time i know that first trailer with michael keaton got a bunch of people excited and then the second trailer with michael keaton came out and he said well he's just doing the same shtick he did in 1989 i know that kind of turned me off i think it turned you off a little bit too and now after watching the film um do you, do you call into question james gunn's taste a little bit if he says this is one of the greatest superhero movies of all time no i don't i'll tell you why um I, I went into this movie skeptical skeptical but optimistic. I was I was um you know seeing the portrayal of my Bruce Wayne, your Bruce Wayne, Michael Keaton in in the trailers and, and his delivery of the lines really didn't inspire me. But I was willing to just go into this going if they give us a solid Barry Allen movie. I can overlook some of the flat stuff that I'm seeing in the trailer. James Gunn's role as head of DC is to sell DC. It's to sell tickets. It's not to be the most credible man in the world. It's not. If he thinks something is shit, but he's putting it out, he cannot say, I think this is shit, right? It's the same thing as like a a sports team owner. Take, take, Take a football, hockey, 
you know, you know, baseball team, like any of those sports, it's not their role to come out there and say, we put a shit team on the field. It's, we think we have a great team. It's going to be one of our best years ever. Come and buy the tickets, come down to the ball game and, and enjoy some peanuts and Cracker Jacks sort of thing. It's the same thing James Gunn's doing. It's He's trying to put butts in the seats. Now, did he oversell the movie? Absolutely. Did he hear his credibility? Not really, because, look, you know, look at the source. He's the head of DC. It's not his job to tell you it's a shitty thing. It's a critic's job, right? Who I think got hurt here was some of those critics that saw early versions of the movie and in that atmosphere of DC, in that bubble that came out and were like, oh, this is this is fantastic. This is one of the... They got they were drinking the Kool-Aid a little bit at whatever they were having at the premiere, and they weren't really watching the same film. Gotcha. Now I think as we go on, you'll kind of hear uh John and I's thoughts on the film. I think I'm a little more positive than John was on it. I had fun uh, in spurts. Um I don't know if I ever mentioned this on the show, uh, the the term uh fridge moments uh before. Alfred Hitchcock coined this phrase. He said, you know, after you go to a movie, uh later on at night, usually when you're in front of the fridge getting a late night snack and you're thinking about the movie, you're like, well, wait a minute. Well, th- well, this, this was kind of dumb. And he called those fridge moments where it doesn't dawn on you after you first see it. But uh, after, upon reflection, it, it, it kind of dawns you. I had a lot of fridge moments in this one where it didn't really bother me the first, after coming out of the theater, even talking to you guys right after, uh, you know, we're getting ready to record. So I'm like, Hey, you know what? I, I had fun in spurts, but then you think about it more and more. And you're like, wait a minute. No, this really doesn't work. Uh, this movie is full of fridge moments for me. So, so did Alfred Hitchcock, have a phrase or a term for for moments you don't think about after the movie, not because you're trying to piece it together about whether it works or not, but because you knew it didn't work to begin with, and then you just didn't care afterwards. I don't know if he did, but uh, he should. Maybe you yeah. should coin a phrase, John. Yeah, I, I mean, I mean, I mean, this this was um, very much filled with um, comfy pillow moments for me, in that. I would go to bed forgetting about this movie and be perfectly fine not remembering a damn thing. Gotcha. I I, I kind of wish I was in that boat. I wouldn't have uh, dedicated so much of my time thinking about The Flash. Uh, but part of The Flash was uh, there were some songs in there and a couple by the band Chicago. And that's who we're covering here tonight. Uh, their classic track 25 or 624, uh, which is a song coming into today. I got to be honest, I'm not that big of a fan of, but I'm hoping maybe uh, listening to it with a fresh uh, pair of ears and a fresh perspective uh, might change my mind on this one. Uh, John, uh, your thoughts on Chicago and the track 25 or 624? I think Chicago is perfectly fine atmospheric music when you have a mixed audience in your house of, I don't know what to put on and you don't want to put anything too heavy, but you want to put on something with some life in it. You know, Chicago is like a perfectly good jukebox band for that sort of thing um they're not somebody that i've collected they're not somebody i've overly sought out but in mixed company i have listened to a lot of chicago over time um while i've never understood the title of the song and i know the meanings in it somewhere um i think it's a very dumb title because if you go to request it and you're like eh, let me get that uh, the one with the numbers and that he can't pick a number in Chicago, like that's kind of the song this it was to me, like twenty five or six to four, like pick a number. Um, but I do like the baseline in the in the song very much. Do 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 do. Yep, very catchy. Uh, I had to look it up here uh, because there was a lot of interpretation about 
uh, the meaning of the word 25 or 624. Uh, it's been interpreted to mean everything from a quality of illicit drugs to the name of a famous person in code. But actually, uh, the song's title is the time at which the song is set, 25 or 26 minutes before 4 a.m. Hence the phrase 25 or 624. So it's either 3.34 or 3.35 in the morning. So you couldn't just pick a time? Yeah, or, or say, you know, yeah, 25 minutes to 4 or 26 minutes to 4. Yeah, well, like 3.35. 26 to 4. Yeah, like there's there's easier ways to say it. Saying 25 or 6, like no, they say either 25 or 26. You don't say 25 or 6. It's yeah. dumb. Yeah, I know. Um, they're not. They're not a British band, right? Like they're, they're an American band. Oh yeah, they're an American band. Uh, yeah, I'm, originally I'm, called I'm, the Chicago Transit Authority, uh, way way back in the day. I'm I'm asking you because I had a um, buddy at one of my old jobs who, who was British, and he would say like half past the hour or 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 twenty. Like that's how he spoke, but I don't think he ever couldn't make a choice on a an exact minute. It was like. I don't know, 12 or 13 to 5, right? Like, nobody nobody talks like that, man. I know. Uh, and this is going to shock you, John. They're actually from Chicago. Uh, you know the Midwest America. Is that how people in Chicago uh, talk about time? I've never visited Chicago. It's on my list. I have a, a, I have a very dear friend of mine who lives there. Um, but I've never, I've never made it out there. And I, I would love to try some of their pizza. Not their deep dish pizza, but their actual pizza. And I would like to try um, some of their hot dogs. Me too. I've driven through Chicago, uh, which is someone coming from Saskatchewan is a very stressful experience because there's like 10 lanes of traffic on either side. Yeah, it's massive uh, and stupid. This is before Google Maps, folks. Uh, you know, you kind of map quested, you printed out paper. So we had our sheets of paper and we're, we're driving through America to get to Ontario. And they said, oh, yeah, the, you know, drive through Chicago. It takes you right through the heart of Chicago. So, you know, I, I drove by like, uh, uh, where do the White Sox play? Uh, Comiskey? Comiskey. Yeah. Drove right by Comiskey. Uh, it, it was a very uh, harrowing experience. But that's my one experience at Chicago. I wish I could have stopped for some pizza. Uh, Chicago, the band has been around since 1968 as the Chicago Transit Authority. Uh, 30 fucking people have been in this band throughout the years. Um, they've released... They had this uh, naming convention uh, with their band, with their albums. It was like Chicago 1, Chicago 2, Chicago 3. And, and they would kind of jump around. And I don't know if they had like live albums or greatest hits or anything in there. But um, right now they're on Chicago 35, uh, Born for This Moment is their latest album, released 2022. But, you know, they kind of went uh, 3, 5, 6, 7, 8, 10, 11. And then Hot Streets, just out of nowhere, they have a, an actual a name of an album. And then 13, 15, then, then you know, th they go from 25 to 30. Like, I don't know what the fuck is up with this band. They're, they're kind of pissing me off with this discography here. Uh, look, look uh, we, we can be grumpy about it all we want. They, they do have some fantastic songs in that category. Yeah, say what you will about this, this particular one, right? But hard, hard to Say I'm Sorry is a really good perennial song. They get to play it a lot. Hard Habit um, to yeah. Break is a great one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, you, you know, they, they've, they've got, they've got some, you know, Saturday. Give me Saturday in the Park. Like it's just a fun, lighthearted song. This isn't that, right? Like this is something a little bit different. Yeah, uh, rock band with horns. I, I think is is how people describe Chicago in the seventies. Uh, this is the single twenty five or six two four by the band Chicago. <laughs> 
So uh, as a child of, of, of the uh, 80s and 90s, uh, I automatically hear Brain Stew by Green Day when I hear that intro. Yeah, it, it definitely like it definitely feels like the band was at least inspired by the song, right? Um, but but does it in a very um, grungy sort of way with a lot a lot of distortion. Um, I actually prefer this ver like this version of of this baseline than what even Green Day does, and I I really enjoy Brains too. Okay. <laughs> So this song is part of the Tim Burton Batman introduction, right? In in, in the Flash. And this is where I really I, I had some problems with the movie, but where I start to contest that's not Tim Burton's Batman and that's Michael Keaton playing another Batman starts with this is the song they intro him with, which feels nothing like the Danny Elfman vibe at all. I know. And I, I was going to make that similar point too. Like, obviously, when you think uh, 89 Batman, you think Prince and you think Bat Dance, right? Which is a song we're going to have to cover uh, on this show or so, something from that era. Uh, why we're listening to a, a Chicago track from 1970, I have no idea. But, but, but if you were to ask me, okay, they're going to put a pop song to that Batman, like Prince would have been perfectly fine, but Prince was almost Jack Nicholson's music in that movie. I would yeah. have thought something more like The Cure. Okay. Right? Yeah. You, you know, you know something, something more like we heard off of the Crow soundtrack around that was released around the same time, or a, little, a couple of years after Batman, but but some of that goth vibe, I think, would have fit this Batman way way more. Hundred percent. And uh, not that long ago, John, we talked about James Gunn and Guardians of the Galaxy three and how he writes to music and actually incorporates songs into his scripts. Uh, to me, this is an example of how not to do it. I'm just shoehorning in a track. Maybe Andy Buschetti's a big uh, Chicago fan, but like for the scene, it doesn't work. Uh, for the vibe, it doesn't work. Like it's kind of a, a fight scene between the two flashes at this point. And like John said, we're going to spoil the fuck out of this movie because judging by the box office receipts, none of you care. Uh, it dropped 73% in the second weekend, which is massive. Uh, so the, there's two flashes at this point in the film. Uh, Barry Allen, who had lost his speed force and a younger Barry Allen who got his speed force uh, going to Wayne Manor uh, to find Batman, and they ended up finding the Michael Keaton Batman because uh, Barry Allen went back in time to stop his mom from getting murdered, and for some reason that changed Batman's. For a correction, they found a Michael Keaton Batman. Okay, yep. <laughs> That's an important distinction. Thank you, John, for correcting me. <laughs> All right, those velvety tones, of course, are Peter Cetera, uh, who was quite big uh, with Chicago uh, in the mid-'80s, then had a very successful solo run uh, after that, and we may actually end up doing a song of his, maybe a little Power of Love from Karate Kid Part Two. Yeah, yeah, there, there was a while there that Cetera was one of my – he's still one of my favorite singers. I've, I've, I've gotten more to the rock voice of things, um, but, but, but Cetera, fantastic singer, Um Chicago without Satara is not the same band for me. Um, 
you know, it's it's like people talk about Genesis and there's the Peter Gabriel Genesis and then there's the Phil Collins Genesis. It's like, give me the Phil Collins Genesis every day of the week. Um, this is very much, give me the Peter Cetera Chicago every day of the week. Yeah, and actually uh, a later version of Chicago uh, re-recorded 25 or 624 for uh, the 1986 album Chicago 18 with James Pankow as listed as the co-writer and Jason Sheff uh, on lead vocals. Uh, so th this is the original that, that played in The Flash. That's why we're listening to it. Uh, I kind of see here that there was a single version, which is a lot shorter. I'm kind of regretting not playing that one. We're playing the 450 uh, album version. Uh, so let let's listen to a little more of uh, 25 or 624. Are you a fan of these horns, John? Uh, it, it's it, it's fine. Um, it's probably what's made me less of a fan of this song than I probably would be otherwise. Um, not that they offend me, but they definitely don't add anything for me. Yeah, I, I find them kind of obnoxious. Like uh, the chorus, I actually like. Like the harmony is quite nice. Uh, the, the guitars are doing a nice thing underneath there that you, you can't really hear unless you're listening to headphones because the horns are just so fucking bloody obnoxious in this thing. So 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 I was going to make the comment. I'm glad, I'm glad you kind of broke in and talked about the horns. There's a lot of similarities between this movie and this song and for me in a lot of ways, right? Starting with the title, like they just sang the title, 20, 25 or 6 to 4, of like, what the fuck does that even mean, right? There, there are choices and moments in this movie that either feel overdone like the horns or, or or nonsensical like the title, right? Like I wanted to talk to you a minute about this opening rescue, this whole sequence that, that Barry does in the movie. So I think that this sets the tone for the movie. And if this lands with you, you will probably enjoy this movie. Um, but for me, I was done. After after seeing this scene and knowing this is the humor that we're going for. And knowing this is the quality of the effects that we're going to be given, I was like, uh, now I'm here for the rest of this. What yes, and these, oh, the effects are atrocious. Like, they're, they're not just bad, they're uh, Scorpion King uh, in The Mummy 2, bad. And, like, it, it's shocking to me in 2023 that we have CGI this terrible in a film. And I'm trying to figure out why. Maybe they, they want it, because what happens in the film is there's a... a Bad things are happening in a hospital. Uh, the hospital's collapsing. A bunch of babies uh, actually from the maternity ward with their nurse uh, slide uh, out the window as the building's collapsing, and they're falling uh, to their presumed death, and the Flash is there. And uh, so this is a rescue sequence with the Flash saving all these cartoon babies. And I'm in my head as I'm watching, I'm like, are they making them look bad so that people don't think actual babies were ever in danger? Because this is this is shockingly bad. No, but then the rest of the effects in the movie are also this bad. And, and Andy Muschietti argued online, well, that's how The Flash sees things, which I could buy if certain effects looked, A, way better, 
right? And and B, you gave me one shot of like almost entering the Flash's eye and turning around and having a flash view mm-hmm. of everything. And then, and I know, oh, now now I'm seeing how things have the. But to make this conscious choice, to for lack of a better description, they feel like they didn't give the. 3D animation enough rendering time, like almost almost like it's toast that pops out too early and it's not fully toast yet. Um, that's how these effects feel. It feels like this was a budget cut and a, a choice of like we're not investing much more in this movie, just get this out. Um, the gags, the the way they're written, are very poorly done. Um, the babies. Are all in absolute? All these babies would be dead because the next next would snap, right? Mm-hmm. Just as the speed Barry travels, yeah. Um, but but they're all in extra peril where like all of a sudden the the the, the scalpels are, are are flying towards one of the babies in, in super slow motion. Um, uh, you, you know all of this stuff is happening, and Barry takes one of the kids and puts him in a microwave. I don't mean mean him him or her. Puts the baby in a microwave, and and gets the baby to safety. And then, when they get to safety, the microwave goes ding, and Barry opens the microwave as if the baby's done and it was cooked, and takes it out as 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 a joke. First of all, that's not how microwaves work, right? It's not like it was a toaster oven. It was it was a microwave. It was unplugged. They're digital. They don't work like that. So the joke is already. I don't mean to nitpick, but it's a broken joke. It's not a funny joke um, to put a baby in a microwave at all. There's nothing humorous or funny about it. Um, and I'm, not that I don't have a sense of humor, right? Um, the Naked Gun, I don't know if it was 22 and a half or 33 and a third or whatever they were. One of the sequels did a fantastic baby joke parodying um, The Untouchables, where all the babies and they're clearly dolls go flying through the air. And it's a gag that lands because of whether it was parodying, what the context was, and everything else. So you can do baby and peril jokes. But it's tough to do that in a superhero movie. This felt like they were going for um, Batman and Robin, ice to meet you level humor. Mm -hmm. And it didn't fit the tone of the movie. And it was very poorly crafted. And it wasn't just that. We also cut back and forth to Batman uh, chasing some thugs uh, at the same time. And those effects are equally horrid. There's only one effect for me that worked in the film, and that was the two Ezra's. Uh, I thought they, that looked pretty seamless. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ruin this for you. My buddy oh. pointed this out while watching the movie. If you look at, I believe it's young Ezra's neckline, right? And my buddy pointed out during the movie, he's like, look at the neckline, whispered it during the movie. And that's all I could stare at the rest of the movie. It's very clearly edited on the double's body. Oh, okay. And, so they didn't and, do the and, didn't do the face replace very well, is what you're saying. Right, right. It's it, it they did it at the neckline to kind of hide it, but like it's very obvious that you know they didn't just shoot double shoot scenes twice and have two Ezra Millers. They see they tried to seamlessly put his head on the double's body. And if you once you see it, it'll probably look better on your TV screen than being blown up on a big screen. Where I had a big problem with the effects, like you mentioned Batman. Um, Michael Keaton's Batman 
doesn't move like Michael Keaton's Batman in this movie. He moves like a video game character. Yeah. And and Michael Keaton's Batman had a very stiff way of fighting, but felt very brutish, felt very um, Dark Knight Returns Batman when he fought. Like, all his punches felt heavy. Um, this Batman doesn't feel like that. He feels very much like the computer animated Ben Affleck Batman, and it doesn't work for the tone of that character, and it doesn't work for the feel of that character. It's one of the things, for me, that breaks that character in this movie. Production problems in the film and production problems in this song, actually. I I don't think the mix is too great, and the horns are just way too loud. Let's get back to it. So now I picture John just staring blindly into space, not thinking about the flash anymore. <laughs> Cause after this conversation, you'll probably never think about it again. Will you? No, I won't. I won't. But I was actually thinking right now, you know, bur- buried in the production of the song right there w- w- was a fairly good so- solo that mm-hmm. was buried by the horns. Yep. And similar to the movie where I felt like there was probably a pretty good performance by Sasha Callie that was buried by edits and buried by lack of dialogue and development. Um, But I really enjoyed what I saw of her in this movie. I could not agree more. I thought she was fantastic and I wanted more of her. And there's a specific part in the movie. I know John, you and I talked about this earlier where uh, her character just changes motivations on a dime. And there's a missing scene there that would have explained it. And they try to explain it with a line, but it doesn't work. And it shows, you know, shortcuts. They had a decade to develop this fucking movie. And they had COVID. They had all these opportunities to fix this shit, and they just chose not to. Part of the problem is the the original cut of this movie was four hours long, and they keep doing this with movies where it's like there's no self-editing, and they're developing these extra bloated movies that they're either not cutting in half or not, you know, a producer's not getting ahead of it going, you need to cut this script because we cannot make a, a, a sane movie out of your four hour movie. Um, and, and I I think it's a constant problem. I think it's Marvel, DC, Star Wars, any of these big budget um, popcorn movies are facing nowadays. Yeah, no, I agree. Totally. Let's get back to Chicago here. Getting up to splash my face Wanting just to stay away Wondering how much I can take Should I try to do So there was a line directly attributed to the theme of the song, which is trying to write a song in the middle of the night. Should I try to write some more 25 or 64? So uh, I, there, there is definitely a, a theme covering that. I'm not sure where people got the uh, uh, interpreting the song to mean quality of illicit drugs. Uh, I'm not a big druggie uh, and we don't do a, a ton around my town here, um, but is 25 or 64 uh, a drug reference in some way? I, I, I don't know. Like I, what I'm learning from listening to the lyrics of the song is he's basically 
singing just about what's happening uh, in the middle of the night and splashing his face and stuff, that Peter Cetera's voice is so good, I could give two shits about what he's actually singing. It's how he's right? singing it. Yeah, It's how he's <laughs> singing it that makes me care. Um, and, and that's probably why I'm so conflicted on a song like this, of like, like you, you came in and you're like, I don't really like the song very much. I'm like, well, I, I kind of think this song has a trump to it. I'm now because we're breaking it down, seeing the parts I think I like, and I'm seeing like as you astutely pointed out, the horns um, hiding a lot of the song being <laughs> prob- 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 problematic with the song. I, I thought it was kind of cool. Uh, Robert Lamb, uh, he's one of the founding members of Chicago, uh, wrote this song, and he composed it on a 12-string guitar with only 10 strings. He was missing the low, the two low E strings. And he he said he wrote the lyrics in a day. It sounds like he wrote the lyrics in a day. Uh, staring off into space, you know, just being, you know, having writer's block in the middle of the night uh, at 3.34 or 3.35, either of which would have been a better title for the song. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it is what it is. That was all pretty cool. They told the horn players to fuck off. We got a smoking guitar solo and some kick-ass uh, drum fills in there too. So, so, so what I will say is this: if if the horns are the problems with the flash, right? The the, the what we just got there, the the band playing, um, feels very much like Michael Shannon and Sasha Cali, right? Like poor Michael Shannon. In, in the Flash, at play, you know, reprising his role as General Zod is buried in this in this mess of a a third act, um, where he his motivations are, are if you haven't seen Man of Steel or you've forgotten Man of Steel, his motivations aren't clear at all. You don't really know why he's there. He shows up, and he's looking for a fight, and you gotta fight him. And even though even though you know his motivations. From Man of Steel, where he wants to find and kill Kal-El, Superman, um, he's already found Kal-El and killed Kal-El in this movie. And it was like, nope, in this universe, I was wrong. I'm really looking for Kara Zor-El, um, his cousin, because she's she's the savior here. And it's like, none of this makes any sense, right? It's all very much done through dialogue. It makes no sense. And it's buried. This guitar solo 
right? And instrumental. I don't want to just call it because, like you pointed out, the drums were here. There's a lot going on here. It doesn't make a lot of sense to the song. Like, it's great, but it goes on for a long period of time and would be much more fitting if we ditched the horns altogether. Yep. Uh, going back to, to Man of Steel, his motivation was uh, uh, Kal-El uh, encoded a codex of all the people at Krypton and inserted it into his son somehow. So the whole uh, Michael Shannon's General Zod wanted to get to uh, Superman so he could kill him and somehow in his blood unlock the code of his people and I guess uh, clone or birth more Kryptonians. And that's why he had those big world engines, which for some reason are in every single fucking DCAU movie uh, since 2013 to terraform Earth uh, into Krypton. It's really stupid because on Earth they have all these superpowers. Um, would that change uh, if they if they made it more like Krypton? I don't know. They don't really say. But in this version, uh, they got to uh, baby uh, uh, Kal-El. Sorry, Jor-El is the dad. Kal-El is the son. And, of course, uh, slaughter the baby and realize he doesn't have the codex. It was actually... Uh, his cousin, um, who is uh, Kara Zorel, I think if I got her name right, uh, who is played by Sasha Kelly. So I, I think I got that right. I, I could be yeah. wrong. Like you said, it's pretty muddy. You you actually did. And, and, and it's muddy like the insertion of this instrumental in this part of the song. The instrumental itself is fantastic. and could stand on its own as a musical piece. But when you put this into the song, it bloats the song and it's the instruments that you're burying in the rest of the song with the horns, mm-hmm. right? So so the transition to it, I don't think is very smooth. And after a while, I feel I feel it goes a few bars too long for what this song is. I would agree, yeah. Little too long. Uh we've got about a minute thirty-four left. Let's let's finish it off here. <laughs> John, we're coming up on the ending of the song, a uh, long song, and I want to talk about the ending of the movie a little bit uh, because there's a cameo. Uh, well, there's a whole bunch uh, in the Speed Force. Uh, we, we talked about the effects. Let's talk about uh, not just I... the effects. Wait, sorry, Corey. I hate to interrupt you. I know they're being marketed as cameos. There is one cameo at the end of this movie, which is an actor showing up in this movie. Yes. Okay, the part that you're referencing right now, though, that you're setting up, I would contest is not actually cameos. They are glorified motion posters that are better suited for Instagram than the context of a movie. 
Yes. And only one of those actors that uh, came back and did anything I found out. Um, but we see little glimpses of uh, George Reeves, uh, Superman from back in the 50s. Uh, we see Christopher Reeve and Helen Slater uh, from the 80s, uh, zombie Superman and zombie Supergirl that look just terrible. We see uh, a Teddy Sears version of The Flash, even though they say it's not Teddy Sears. It looks exactly like Teddy Sears, which is Teddy really Sears dumb. even says... It's it's not Teddy Sears where he doesn't remember filming any new because he was having a baby at the time and he's been taking care of his baby at home. So Teddy Sears very well may have a lawsuit on his hands. Yes, hundred uh, percent. But uh, one of the things we get is Nicolas Cage as Superman uh, fighting a giant spider, which is kind of a deep cut unless you know uh, the great uh, John Schnepp documentary, uh, The Death of Superman Lives, uh, which is a fantastic documentary. Everyone should go check that out. But Kevin Smith at one point was tasked by John Peters to write a Superman film. And he had three rules. Uh, one of them was no flying. Uh, one of them was something with the costume, I think. And the third one was he has to fight a giant spider in the third act. Uh, so if John Peters now gets Nicolas Cage as Superman, which would have been a Tim Burton film uh, back in the day. It was about three weeks away from uh, production uh, before it got canceled. Uh, and a lot of great stuff in that documentary about why it got canceled. But uh, Nicolas Cage actually came back and did some motion caption work it's not actually him. It's a CG version of him. Uh, but he at least did the motion caption work for it, fighting a giant spider. And it looks terrible. It's so fucking stupid. Like, let the man just play Superman. It would have been so cool. I'm, I'm going to talk about this last scene. If this last scene were to happen and, and George Clooney comes out, first of all, George Clooney should have come out not in Ben Affleck's car, but in a, a, a neon lit. Like, it should have felt like George Clooney's Batman, the production on this movie sucked because every um, instance of a character should have felt like the character from the world that they were in. It should have felt like Schumacher's Bruce Wayne showing up in day glow colors. And it would have been very cool if then Nicholas Cage's Superman landed next to him. And we just said, you know what? This would have been George Clooney Superman. Um, like stuff like that would have been very cool. Um, there were so many missed marks on how they did it. The the George Reeves um, cameo in particular is in very poor taste because depending on whether or not he was shot by somebody else or if you b- believe that he actually committed suicide, a contributing factor to um, his poor quality of life that leads people to believe it was a suicide um, was his misery on having played Superman and it ruining his career. Um and so so it's all done in very poor taste. Um, it wasn't nostalgic or exciting to see him. They, they, they also show the Adam West Batman as like a motion poster. Um, the only one what character that actually moves is the Nicolas Cage one, but it's done in this phony PlayStation 2 um, computer graphics that Corey said it looks like absolute shit. He's not wrong. It would have been very cool to see him actually fight a spider. And they, by all you know, by all means, they could have done that, especially because they had the actor back. Um, it goes to show you all the shortcuts this movie took. Yes, and a little bit more about the ending. Uh, so I talked about the premise of the film, which is Flash goes back in time to prevent his mother being murdered uh, by using a can of tomatoes. At no point does he bother to try and figure out who murdered his mom, and maybe stop that guy, because they were going to save that for a sequel, which I hate. And I think Mark Bernard had the best quote. Uh, don't set the table for tomorrow when you haven't eaten yet today. 
Uh, worry about the movie you're making. Don't set the table for another one. That would have made much more sense. That's a huge fucking plot device that just completely was ruined for me. Uh, originally, the film was supposed to end with uh, uh, Michael Keaton and Sasha Cali coming back as Supergirl and Batman. Uh, their whole uh, purpose uh, in this kind of crisis in Infinite, in Infinite Earths battle against uh, General Zod was that they died every single time. And um, so they, they died multiple times uh, during that whole thing. Uh, it was meant to kind of erase... Um, uh, Henry Cavill and Ben Affleck from the DCEU and kind of reset with uh, Michael Keaton and Sasha Cali as Supergirl and Batman. That was ending one. And then uh, after Warner Media and Discovery merged and uh, they decided that they were going to keep Cavill. So Cavill shot a second ending with Gal Gadot as Wonder Woman. Uh, so that was going to be the uh, big cameo at the end. And then James Gunn got hired and he scrapped that. And they shot just this past January a new version with George Clooney uh, as Batman, which is by far the worst one uh, out of the three that they could have done. I guess so. I mean, I mean, they were all kind of ill-conceived and 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 setting up tomorrow in different ways, and, and they they were all problematic. I I feel like my bigger problem with the movie, and I think the bigger crime of this movie that not enough people are talking about, not that every superhero movie needs a villain because i'm sure you can do a great superhero movie that is more about um personal growth or learning what it means to be a superhero and you can certainly write a, a superhero movie without conflict but once you choose to do a superhero movie with conflict you really got to put a stake in who your villain is and if i held a gun to your head Corey, you could not tell me who the actual villain of this film is, because at any moment, it's one of three or four characters, including Barry Allen, right? Mm -hmm. Because Bar Barry Allen seemingly causes all the problems in this movie. And then, because he moves the tomato can at the end, doesn't even learn from his error, right? So I would argue he's the villain. General Zod seems like he's the villain, but he's so underdeveloped. Is he the villain, right? And, and, and other ba Barry Allen... Seems like he becomes the villain, but there's we we see none of his actual fall to become a villain, and even in that moment, um, he saves the world from himself, right? So he's both mm -hmm. the hero and the villain. This movie is as muddy as the song at times. Hundred percent, uh, and you could even uh, you would think the villain might be the guy who killed uh, Barry Allen's mom, but nope. No, no mention of him uh, whatsoever in the film. Uh, comic fans will know, or fans of the TV show, because I watched uh, the first few seasons of uh, the Flash TV show, uh, which Greg Berlanti was also uh, at one point uh, optioned to do the film version. Uh, he went to the TV show, and that worked out better for him. But uh, Eobod Thon is a name that comic fans are going to know. Uh, we're assuming he killed Barry's mom in, in the DCU. We really have no idea. Uh, let's finish off the last 30 seconds of uh, 334 which is what I'm now going to call this song, because that's what it is. Oh, that ending hurt my head, just kind of like how the movie The Flash hurt my head. Um, it is tanking hard at the box office. Uh, kind of another example of everything that Warner Brothers uh, kind of touching, uh, just turning to utter shit. Everything they, they've tried is not working. 
Uh, they're buying uh, stakes in this AI technology to help them make their movies, which could not be worth, uh, you know, is such a bad idea. Um, you, you can't create art uh, solely with artificial intelligence. It's just stupid. Uh, they made, uh, Warner Brothers made uh, waves this week. They're cutting costs everywhere um, because they're bleeding money. Uh, one of the things they tried to do was uh, the turf Turner classic movies, which a bunch of uh, film fans like ourselves and film historians uh, really came up in arms about uh, Steven Spielberg, Paul Thomas Anderson, Martin Scorsese actually had to f uh, call David Zaslav, the head of Warner brothers and talk him out of turfing Turner classic movies. Cause their whole purpose is to, uh, uh, you know, celebrate classic film the way it was meant to be seen. And it's a favorite of, of so many people. Uh, but that's one of the ways that, the, you know, they just want to cut corners and just, you know, try and, and stop from bleeding money all over the place. They're trying to uh, bring filmmakers back to the fold like Christopher Nolan, but they're not going to do it by some of the decisions they're making here. And now by bringing in James Gunn and Peter Safran, which could be a move that works out for them, completely undermines these last four or five films of the DCEU. We had uh, the new Shazam movie, which I actually thought was kind of fun. I didn't have much problem with it. It tanked pretty hard. Black Adam, of course, tanked pretty hard. This film is tanking pretty hard. We have two more uh, of these films, hey. Blue Beetle and uh, Aquaman, the Aquaman sequel. Corey, this th this film is tanking harder than Black Adam. Yeah. Uh, um, the, the the drop you said it was it, it, it first it, it it was what 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 like a seventy seventy three drop seventy three percent drop. Yeah. So 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 it was a seventy three percent drop from week one to two. What people aren't talking about were the expectations of this movie. It, it made about a third of what they thought it was going to make in week one. So it was already woefully underperforming. And then the drop um, has now put it behind Black Adam, which doesn't say a lot for the, the upcoming releases on the DC schedule. They, they're, they're banking on um, Momoa. From, and, and from what I've heard, Momoa's star has lost a little bit of its shine being associated with the, the Fast franchise, um, you, you know, I haven't seen it yet, but but my friends who have, um, have have said, you know, you know, he's taken a bit of a hit for his performance in that and being associated with that. Um, he didn't need it to begin with. Um, and, and then and then uh, we have Blue Beetle, which seems like it's significantly lower budget, seems like a family movie, but being associated, they should almost shelve it. Till after Gunn's movies start coming out and just let it be part of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because then Gunn said that this version of Blue Beetle will be in his DCU, but this movie isn't. So it's all very confusing at this point. And now we said that, you know, Gal Gadot, Wonder Woman, Henry Cavill, Superman, uh, Ezra Miller, Flash, they could all live in this DC Elseworlds uh, kind of universe where we have multiple Batmans. We have, uh, uh, what the fuck his name? Uh, the kid from The Twilight, Robert Pattinson. Uh, he has the Batman films. We have a different Joker that's not associated with that. Uh, Joaquin Phoenix's uh, that that's going to play in that world. So there's so many Batmans, so many different versions of these characters. Now we're going to have all new ones that are going to tie into the TV and the video games. And it's just God. It just seems like the way wrong thing to do, doesn't it? Yes. Yes, it's all very poorly. It's you can't have your cake and eat it too, right? If you're going to start fresh, you need to start fresh. And the minute you say, yeah, but I like some of these things so much, I want to keep them. Whereas if the studio says some of these things are working and I want to keep it, it either works or it doesn't work. And and this has been the problem with DC all along, is they keep trying to do this. And as long as they're doing this as half measures, they're setting themselves up for failure. 
Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. So that's our thoughts uh, on The Flash on Chicago on 25 or 64. Uh, John, anything else you want to mention before we wrap it up here? No, it's look, we were both disappointed in this movie. We both wanted to like it. If you like this movie, by all means, I don't fault you for it. I'm not one of these people who are like, I hated this and, and you should hate this too. It's like, look, I could argue why the craftsmanship and everything else don't work in this movie. There are plenty of schlocky movies I enjoy that you could argue are worse than this movie, but they know very much what they are and they, and they buy into it. I feel like this movie lacks um, self-awareness. And I think it, it lacks um, identity. Um, and I think those are the biggest crimes a movie can make. And I think this movie and a lot of the DC universe right now has the same problem. I agree. And uh, you mentioned schlocky. We're going to talk schlocky next time on the next episode. And we're going to have a lot more fun doing it. But until then, on behalf of John Mariano, my name is Corey Morissette. Thank you very much for listening. And we'll see you next time on Backtracks Theme Music. this Superman, then you're on your own. You're... You are here. Yeah. I'm Batman.